The Cannabis Conversation. A European perspective on the emerging legal cannabis industry. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation with the News to Say, where we explore the new legal cannabis industry by speaking to the professionals that are helping to shape it. Welcome back. Hope you're all well. I can't believe we're over halfway through February already. Time really is flying. The year has started pretty well for me, happy to say. I've gone back to being a lawyer more seriously, which seems to be going well. So if you're looking for a commercial lawyer in the UK, please do reach out. But on a wider note, I'm starting to look at things beyond cannabis as it's been tough going here in the UK. I've been getting a bit more involved with the psychedelics world, which you probably knew about last year. But that's been very interesting. I'll be going to Breaking Convention in April in Exeter in the west of England. Breaking Convention is Europe's largest psychedelic conference. It covers everything from the scientific to the cultural aspects of psychedelia. I'm very excited about this, so please do join me if you're interested. I'll post a link in the social posts for this show. Once again, this episode is sponsored by our good friends at Lumino. We're talking about Malta today, which, although small, has been a key player in the European cannabis legalisation movement. Lumino have a great network across Europe and are currently working with businesses in Malta. They're always happy to chat. They're the nicest people I know in the industry, as I always say. So if you need help with HR or recruitment, please do get in touch with them at luminorecruit.com. And obviously, please do mention my name when you do. Now, on with the show. Enjoy. On today's show, I have Nick Pateras and Andrew Bonello. Nick is Managing Director at Materia. Materia are a European medical cannabis manufacturer and distributor. And Andrew is present at Relief Malta. Relief are a cannabis policy reform group who are based in Malta. Nick, Andrew, welcome. How are you both? Thanks for inviting me, Anush. Pleasure. Yeah, cool. So we've got a very obvious topic of Malta here today, which is obviously a, a small country in the EU, but a very important one, I think, in terms of cannabis. And... Yeah, so we'll get into talking a bit about what's happening there in a second. Before we do that, it would be great if you could both sort of introduce yourselves and maybe tell us a bit about your background and what you're doing in the cannabis space. Andrew, would you like to kick off? Sure. So, yeah, I'm basically part of an NGO, local NGO, which is founded on human rights and civil liberties, obviously to do with cannabis reform, and something we've been trying to push for for a number of years. And I can say that we're actually at quite a good place at the moment, considering the rest of um, the EU. So um, we're pretty happy with that, but obviously not totally happy because of recent developments within the newly found Cannabis Authority, which has been set up. But we can speak about that. Fantastic. Thank you. Nick, you've been on the show a couple of times, but if you wouldn't mind telling people a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So my background is in pharmaceuticals. I spent most of my career working in healthcare for Johnson & Johnson. And I moved into the cannabis space about six or seven years ago when I was living in Canada. And the medical industry there was growing very fast. This is prior to Trudeau running on the promise to legalize cannabis for adult use purposes and then subsequently doing so. And so it was a very interesting time to jump into the industry then because there was obviously a lot of growing interest and awareness of the properties of cannabis, and then decided to hop on board the Materia project as it was being started. Materia is a European-focused manufacturer and distributor of medical cannabis. So we have a facility 
in Malta, that's EU GMP certified, where we produce medical cannabis flour, as well as a distributor in Germany that does import and sales to pharmacies. Brilliant. Thank you, Nick. And, you know, both of you got the perfect backgrounds to talk about Malta in particular, but also very much in a European context. So why don't we kick off with just, you know, some very high level basics. There was a lot of excitement in Malta at the end of 2021 when Malta became the first EU country to legalize cultivation and personal use of cannabis. However, it seems that the frameworks to support this haven't quite been set up fully yet to sort of deliver on a lot of that. It'd be great to find out what the reality of the situation is. Andrew, you're sort of saying it's in a good space, but there's room for improvement. Maybe if you can just give us firstly a, a very high level legal overview of the status of cannabis and then maybe some of how that is actually working in practice. And when I'm talking about that, maybe you can explain about the difference between medical adult use and, and CBD. Yes, look, Malta hasn't legalized cannabis at all, although most of the press had, had reported so. Um, if one looks into the law itself, you'll see that is there's some sort of partial decriminalization that took place. You know, the, We don't have a new law on cannabis. What we do is we have an updated law of our sort of narcotics act. So what has happened is that, yes, seven grams of cannabis is not going to be prosecuted. Sort of the possession of seven grams of cannabis won't, won't be prosecuted if you've got that on you in public. And also you won't be prosecuted for growing up to four plants at home. Then sort of obviously they did um, involve the fact that you can get your sort of your, your records expunged if you had sort of some sort of um, dirty or criminal record, which was a great move or something we had proposed. And obviously one, one, one other major point, which everyone seems to be excited about, is the fact that they will be moving to set up cannabis associations, which is sort of kind of based on the Spanish social club model, but not exactly because there will be no consumption on site. So the government actually is is using the, the human rights obligation to put this forward. You see, what we're doing at the moment doesn't really have, it kind of flies below the United Nations Convention's radar because what we're doing is, is decriminalizing and not legalizing. So it's important to mention that. Obviously, you know, people have started growing from day one. Everyone's very open about it and posting the pics and, and people helping each other out. So it's a beautiful thing to see. You know, this has had a, obviously an impact on the illicit market, but you know, when it comes to opening these associations, obviously nothing has sort of been written in stone yet. There was a bumpy start as to the authority for the responsible use of cannabis, known as AROC, that was set up pretty much right after the bill was introduced. So I'd say about a month later, a chairperson was appointed and the board, the board was formed. But unfortunately, 10, 10 months later, the, the chairperson was removed and a new one was put in. So we feel that we kind of had 10 months slightly wasted. And so we're kind of starting from scratch again with a new chairperson. So now we've got to see, well, you know, there was, there was a convention held last week, um, just over a week ago, where sort of some more details were given on the direction the government is taking. But... You know, there weren't really any granular details for those wanting to open an association. So it's kind of still a little bit up in the air at the moment. Obviously, we understand that these things are not easy. We're kind of the first movers in Europe to to do something similar. So these these things take time. But unfortunately, the government has put pressure on the authority to 
start issuing permits by the end of this month, which isn't really much time when you think about it. So that's kind of the situation we're in at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you. And thanks for clarifying that around the legalization and the decriminalization. It's often reporting around this is is not very clear. So good to understand that. Maybe you can give us a bit of context as well. I mean, how big is Malta in terms of population and how big is cannabis usage, I guess, recreationally and medically? Well, I mean, the population is around half a million at the moment. And the usage is hard to kind of define because obviously, you know, having a sort of prohibitive setup, you know, people will not come forward and admit that they they are consumers. But one government study had come out and said that we were around the sort of 40,000, 50,000 mark. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I think it's pretty much comparable to the rest of Europe, you know, it's sort of more or less the same percentage. And do they make a difference between CBD and cannabis? Is are there specific rules for that? Yeah, well, I mean, this was actually mentioned in the actual updating of the law, and it came out in the bill where it's separating CBD from cannabis. So anything with 0.2% and less of THC is not considered cannabis anymore. It will be considered CBD. So it's actually not part of the, the law. It's not in the Narcotics Act. So obviously, you know, some shops started opening up and selling, but obviously then comes the problem of flour. You know, having CBD flour seems to be obviously a problem, not only, I think, in Malta, but in other jurisdictions as well. We've seen shops getting raided, you know, doctors being arrested for providing CBD to their patients. And so, you know, a lot of people going and coming from court. So, you know, this is kind of... The situation where, you know, the country moves forward, but law enforcement doesn't really understand the spirit of the law and still keeps cracking down. So we we actually, as an NGO ourselves, wrote to the European Commission about this to try and sort of get some sort of harmonization within the European Union on CBD, particularly flour, because it's creating unnecessary problems to, to many citizens. People are trying to import their CBD from from overseas as well, having it stopped at customs, you know, being asked to go into the police station to answer questions. So it's not a very good situation at the moment, and we hope this gets cleared up as soon as possible. Yeah, CBD flowers seems to be quite an issue across the continent, as you mentioned. No one seems to have uh, been quite clear on what, what to do about it. Nick, maybe we can bring you in here. How do you see this sort of playing out from a business perspective and what are some of the reasons of why and how you operate as Materia in Malta? Yeah, sure. Although before I answer that question, I actually have a, another question for Andrew. Andrew, because we haven't actually discussed this particular point between us, but you characterize the law as one of decriminalization rather than legalization. And I'm curious about that because the law doesn't just remove criminal penalties. It also removes the obligation for law enforcement to impose civil penalties, sanctions, fines, or some kind of rehab education, which is what other true decriminalization laws have around Europe. I'm curious to know why you characterize this decrim rather than legalization of possession, at least. Well, I mean, the law enforcement still has a right to take you in for questioning if you're caught with less than seven grams anyway, because if they have a reason to suspect that you might be dealing, they can take you in, you see. So the power is still in their hands to be able to criminalize. So we don't consider this to be legalization at all. That's one of the reasons. I see. I see. Okay. So uh, to your question, Anuj, the the business impact. I mean, 
I'll talk about it from a medical perspective. So yeah, there's two types of impact that I think about with regards to this law on the medical market to start. One is the short-term impact. The other is the long-term. Short-term, I think the impact is going to be fairly minimal because of the time it's going to take to get the social club infrastructure up and running. So as Andrew mentioned, license applications are only being accepted starting this month. We don't know how long the government's going to take to review and approve those. Then you have all the issues of where are these locations going to be based. You have to get permits approved by your local authorities, etc. Building out the infrastructure, etc. And then everything from track and trace to how has it been cultivated to dialing in the genetics. Uh, we see the, uh, the struggles on the cultivation side with that in the medical market. So I don't think that we're going to have a full system up and running for probably a couple of years. So in the short term, there's a, probably a minimal impact to the medical market. Thereafter, though, it could be quite disruptive because if you're a patient and you're used to buying either through the legal medical channels or the black market, and all of a sudden you have a social club in your community where you can get probably decent quality cannabis at affordable prices, you're going to consider whether or not to sign up as a member there. So there could be some disruption to the medical market long term. And then from a broader business perspective, I mean, by definition, by design, there are not supposed to be business interests in the social club bottle. They are intended to be not for profit. Now, the actual cost base of setting these social clubs up is going to be a bit prohibitive for some. Some of your listeners may have seen the license fees associated with applying for one of these social clubs. One of them, you know, the, the starting application is a thousand euros, and then it can go up to eight, nine thousand euros if you have a full 500 members registered with you. So that's, that becomes a bit prohibitive for those who don't have a ton of access to capital. And all it means is that your break even point is that much higher, whereby you have to actually cover your costs. And so you're either charging a higher price for the product or you're moving more, which means you're you're going to try to encourage consumers to buy more often, which you're not explicitly supposed to do. But it's going to be a really tricky balance for these social club operators to actually be able to present themselves as not-for-profit. I expect that they're probably going to be loss-making for a number of years. Yeah, that is quite a tricky bind, isn't it? Andrew, have you got any views on that? Yes, just uh, some corrections there. Those that want to apply to open a, an association, just a little bit around the fees here, which I think got muddled up a little. It, it, it was mentioned that you need to pay one 1,000 euros just to apply. That, that's your application to go through. Then there are sort of different segments. If you want to apply for a, an association with up to 50 members, then they have proposed the fee of 8,750 euros, as in that would be a license fee. So, you know, what's it going to cost for 100 members or up to your maximum, which would be 500 members, you know? This is obviously going to sideline most of the, you know, people that are already growing, which which basically are meant to be targeted to bring into the, the regulated model. So if we're going to sideline these people with these sort of, you know, of the top regulatory frameworks, you know, sort of designed only for people with deep pockets, then, you know, it's going to be hard to advance the, the principles of a harm and risk reduction approach, which are embedded within a non-profit and social equity framework. So if we had proposed a document 
which focused on the so social equity. Um, and this seems to have been sort of, you know, sidelined, unfortunately. Lots of people have been, have gone through hell just for having grown or, or, or consumed the plant. So we feel that these, these people should be, you know, looked after and, you know, we should be looking at the people that are already growing and see how we're going to bring them into the legal framework and not sideline them. So, you know, it's kind of also the fact that you cannot consume on site blocks the government's own harm reduction principle, you know. So there's a lot of work to be done. And one of maybe the most positive things we heard at the last convention was that things are still not written in stone. So we're hoping to be able to bend it sort of a little bit more towards the community rather than, you know, just a few players. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and I think the other thing to add to that as well is not only is there this these upfront application fees, the 1,000 euros and then whatever the sum comes to based on how many members you're looking to serve, but also for every grand sold, there's going to be a percentage that is taken off as a fee by the government to go towards harm reduction, which is good for the purposes of harm reduction. But again, it makes it that much harder for operators to cover the cost base. And now the government's also looking into whether or not they're going to be able to charge VAT on sales, which is a very interesting question and a complex one because then it implicates Europe's financial and banking systems. Can you charge VAT on something that is not really supposed to be sold by the strictest interpretation of European law? And if they do apply VAT on top of it, then again, you're putting the social clubs in competition with people who choose to stay in the black market where VAT is not applied. So it makes things harder and harder to achieve the goal of shifting people over into legal channels. If the government was legalizing cannabis and removed it completely from the Narcotics Act and went for a commercial model, then, you know, that might make sense. But considering that cannabis is still practically illegal, it makes absolutely no sense to be charging that. Yeah, I don't know about you, Andrew, but that to me feels like the government's just trying to increase their, their personal revenues yeah, on this yeah. without thinking through. Like that, That's the one point of this conversation, which for me feels the most detached from the objectives that was yeah. stated in the law. I mean, I agree. You know, it's meant to be a non-profit model, you know, a bottom-up approach, you know, sort of run by the community for the community. But then sort of we, we're seeing that the authority or government are trying to cash in. So, you know, what kind of goes counter to the whole non-profit system. I think there's a lot of work still to be done. But like I said before, unfortunately, they've been given this crazy deadline, which I find kind of unfair, even on the authority itself, to have to steam ahead and sort of come out with some, you know, almost comical things like adding VAT on something which is still illegal. So, you know, like I said, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, as always with cannabis, it's <laughs> always a bit complicated. I mean, you mentioned the authority and, you know, there's been a little bit of controversy over the change of leadership there. And Andrew, would you mind filling us in a bit on, on that? Yes, well, I mean, you know, there was a chairperson that was given a job that lasted 10 months. The government weren't, weren't happy with the way things were going and replaced her. But, you know, when you think about it, 10 months is not really that much of a long time to sort of, you know, learn about the industry or learn about, you know, what consumers want, learn about, you know, the troubles that the community have been through over the past decades, especially when you put someone in that is not from the community. So if you look at the chairperson, including the new chairperson and the people on the board, 
you won't find one person that is from the community. So it's very hard for them to understand uh, what needs to be done. So that they're starting from scratch. They're trying to invent something without understanding the core principles. So obviously, it's, it's a very difficult situation. You know, we try to sit down at the table as much as we can. I've met with the chairperson. I've met with the board. You know, I've told them where we're coming from, what we've been through, and and what needs to be fixed. But you know, on, on the other side, there's also you know people or maybe sort of industry players that are speaking to the authority as well and trying to guide them on on how they should move forward. But we need to keep in mind that the medical cannabis industry and this sort of new recreational part needs to be separated. You know, we can't have any overlaps. We can't have the sort of strict regulatory frameworks that you do have with the medicine, the sort of medicinal cannabis industry. I know they had, you know, went through hell to be able to, you know, set up and, and gain EU GMP certification and, and have their grow rooms up to sort of the right specs and, and all those kind of things. You know, when, when we're talking about the rec market, then we have to look at it differently. You know, we can't have those type of regulations. Otherwise, you're just going to be pushing out the, the legacy growers, which are the, the people we should be targeting at the end of the day, in our opinion. Yeah, that's always an interesting one. And actually, I was going to move on to that, to the actual kind of regulated medical cannabis industry. Nick, can I talk about Malta in an international context, and obviously in particular in Europe? So the first thing to understand about Malta's approach to medical cannabis was that the government saw it as, a, as an economic driver. So when they passed the medical cannabis law in 2018, the thinking was to attract foreign investment for Malta to serve in the medical cannabis industry as it had done previously for the pharmaceutical industry, where it's a processor and entry point for pharmaceutical medicines to the rest of the European Union. So a lot of companies thought that's a fantastic opportunity. There were a lot of business schemes and, and supportive grants put in place to make things ostensibly easy to set up. But of course, when you're doing something for the very first time, including regulating a narcotic medicine, things always take longer than people think and they're costlier than people budget for too. So as it stands now, we've got about three operational facilities on the island. Materials is one of them. We're still today the only facility that is actually exported from Malta to another market. And of course, we sell into the local Maltese market too. So the Maltese market is small by virtue of its population, but we actually think it's probably one of the highest in Europe in terms of per capita consumption based on what we see elsewhere from other markets data compared to what we sell through and what we hear doctors are prescribing as well. So it's a, it's an interesting market to serve as a test ground for us, for other bigger, more competitive jurisdictions like Germany. Obviously, serving the local patients is a priority for us. Based in Malta, the whole point of being there was initially to export, but you need to be able to serve uh, your local patients as well. So that actually, we never allocate product to another market over the lo local Maltese market. And because the, the medical community of prescribers is still so small, it's actually allows for a really good feedback loop between us and the doctors and the pharmacies. So we can understand what a patient's asking for, what are your biggest pain points in terms of prescribing, dispensing. So it's actually a really nice place to get our feet wet and test new ideas. That's good. That's great to understand that, actually. So as we kind of come to, to the end, Andrew, what would you like to see sort of going forward? What, what are the kind of major areas to resolve for you in the short and medium term? 
Well, I mean, look, it's going to be exciting times for sure. But what I would like to see is at this point, the Cannabis Authority engage more with the community to see what it is that the community wants and needs. And um, it's going to be great for us to be able to have, you know, a product that will be tested and labeled so you can have greater confidence in what you're using, make sure they're free from heavy metals, pesticides and other things. But, you know, I think I agree with Nick in the sense that this is probably going to, you know, drag out for a little bit. It's not going to be, you know, yes, they will be accepting, well, they'll be accepting people that will want to participate in these new, in this new framework at the end of the month. But, you know, when, when the licenses will be given is a completely other question. I mean, it's, it's going to take a long time. But I mean, I hope that they manage to see that, you know, if they're going to be over-regulating, this is, this is just not going to work. So they, they need to listen more to the community and, and what the community needs. Yeah, absolutely. And Nick, maybe some final thoughts for you. One of the questions that I was wanting to ask was, as you mentioned, Malta was sort of wanted to establish itself as a kind of place to export into Europe and kind of in a similar way to the, the farmer model that preceded. Now that kind of other things are happening around Europe, is that sort of early mover advantage changed at all? Or is that affecting business in Malta? I don't know if there ever really was an early mover advantage to be in Malta. I mean, that, that theory hasn't really played out in any cannabis market anywhere. If anything, the people who move first are just the ones who fall over the first on uh, the obstacles and sometimes struggle to get back up. So, look, I think that it's, it's good that Malta is moving forward with some form of legalization. Obviously, it's imperfect, but it's good for the island to be showing that it can be progressive, not just on medical cannabis as it was a few years ago, but also on adult use cannabis. At the, end, at the end of the day, all of the issues that we've discussed and between myself and Andrew today, the fact is that Malta is moving forward on a nationally sanctioned model by which people can pay for cannabis and access it legally. And that's awesome because it's basically as far as European law allows you to go right now. And in fact, even in the, in the strictest interpretation of European law, social clubs shouldn't be allowed. So you have to be a little bit creative, a little bit liberal in how you stretch and apply the 2004 council framework decision to allow for social clubs and not just legal possession or decriminalization. So I think bigger picture, the, the direction of travel, although slow, is pointing in the right, the right direction. Great. That's a positive way to end it. <laughs> thank you, Nick. Cool. Well, guys, thank you for sort of joining me today. It was great to kind of understand a bit about more about Malta. And again, it's, you know, it's quite a small nation, but it's quite an important one in terms of European cannabis. So yeah, thank you for sharing your insights. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. Great, guys. Take care.